Highway Hi-Fi podcast where we go track by track through the underbelly of music history using research and trivia to locate the roots of our obsession with vinyl records. I'm Joe. And I'm Ryan. And congratulations, you have found the internet's finest podcast about music that will burn you if you try to cut it off. Today we are going to uh, have a great turntable talk for you, but before we do that, we are going to start, like always, with a little bit of trivia. All right, I'm going to go first this week with the non-audio round, and I don't have a title for this one. I never do, but maybe it's called To Butthole or Not To Butthole. <laughs> I, think, I think I'll stick with that. Yeah, that's a good title. What I'm going to do is I am going to name a song, and I want you to tell me if it is an actual title for a Butthole Surfer song. <laughs> okay. Okay. All right. Okay. So here we go. Number one, Bong Song. Bong Song, B-O-N-G. Mm-hmm. B-O-N-G. S-O-N-G. Space S-O-N-G. Two words. I don't think that is, no. It oh. is. It is a song. All right, number two, John Glenn's Ball Sack. <laughs> no. No, that is not. That is mine. <laughs> okay. No, number three, Napalm Serenade. I don't think so. That is not. That's mine also. Okay, number four, Turkey and Dressing. Yes. Yes, it is. Very good. Good, good. <laughs> the next one is called, uh, let's see, is Chewing George Lucas's Chocolate. No way. It is. It is a song. Wow. Is that like a, off a later one or? Um, No, it was actually, well, it was recorded early. I think it, it was on like an EP. Okay, okay. Yeah. All right. The next one is called the Ballad of Tada the Shit Lady. Um, I'm going to say no. That is not. Okay. Good work. Good. You're doing really good. Okay. <clears throat> the next one is Eraser Taint. <laughs> no. That is not. That's mine. <laughs> <laughs> you sound like you, you could have really fit right in with the band, though. Well, maybe. Maybe. As far as titles come up, I couldn't have lived like that. But, no, probably know. not. Okay. The next one is Booze, Tobacco, Dope, Pussy, Cars. Yes. Yes, it is. Okay. Now we have Golden Showers. It sounds like it should have more, like Golden Showers on something or someone. Um, I'll say yes. It is. Good work. Okay, good. Okay. To use a little bit of logic to figure that out. Yeah, yeah, I am not tricking you like you normally trick me. Okay, this next one is called colon jackknife. Is it colon like the punctuation or colon like what's in your gut? I think it's like what's in your gut. Yes, that's it's, a song. It is not. That's oh. mine. Okay. The next one is ashtray ham. <laughs> I just want it to be one, so I'm going to say yes. It is not. Oh, man. Then we've got <laughs> Fart Song. Art Song? Fart. F-A-R-T. Yes. F is in fart. That is, a, yes, that is one. 
All right, we've got two more. Ooh. The first, the second, the penultimate one will be the revenge of Anus Presley. Yes. Yes, it is. Okay, good. And the last one, James Doohan's moist loins. <laughs> it can't be, but it should be. It is not. That is mine. <laughs> it's just fa- some fan fiction. Yeah, on. that was that's all I really did there. All Man, right, good job. We, we spent so got... so much time not trying to cuss or be nasty on this podcast, and we just threw it out the window with one butthole surfers quiz. Ta-da! <laughs> <laughs> okay, are you ready for my quiz? Yes, I am. Okay, I Always. got an audio quiz for you today. It's called Black Angel's Death Song, and so what I'm okay. going to do is I'm going to play you six songs. I'm going to start with one, and then I'm going to add another one on top of that every 15 seconds. So you have one song playing, then two song playing, then three songs, all the way up to six songs. All these songs are by one band, which you will be very familiar with, and I think probably most of our audience will be. But every song has a different lead singer for the clip that I play you. So your job is to tell me all the singers in order. And then, for bonus points, if you just want to show off, you can tell me the, the song titles, too. But that will be very difficult, I think. Uh, so, wait, it's a band that has six singers, then? It's a band saying? that, throughout their career, has had at least six different singers for per song. Okay, like guest singers, or does that... Doesn't really no, they're all, they're all okay. uh, official band members, I would say. Okay. So it's just one long clip. Remember, it's it's six different songs, but you're only gonna get one an additional one every 15 seconds. All right, here we go. Okay. They're busy waiting for her booster. She's just back from Carolina. She says she's bound to beat a sailor. If you'd only thought of this before. Suddenly, rough hands gripped at the package, and he felt himself worn up. He landed with a thud in the truck and was on. Marsha Bronson had just finished setting her hair. It had been a very rough weekend. She had to remember not to drink like that. Bill had been nice about it, huh? After it was over, he said he still respected her, and after all, it was certainly the way of nature. some sense of that cacophony. What the hell was that? Yeah. Was, uh, that was kind of my last... homage to the butthole surfers with the uh, tape <laughs> manipulation and, and sound collage. And... I think by the end, that was just metal machine music. Yes, yes, that's how okay. that's how Lou Reed made metal machine music. He just played all the songs he'd previously <laughs> written on top of each other. Wow, yeah, that was, that was impressive. <laughs> 
<laughs> it's the most work I've ever done for an audio quiz. Good work. <laughs> um, <laughs> I don't know how much work I would want you to do again. <laughs> Just kidding. That was great. Okay. Um, I will do my best. I I have some guesses. Uh, I have some good good guesses for a while there and then then it's it gets harder it's and harder guesses it uh, does at least yep. i put them all in the same band i could have just done six different bands and that would have been very yeah hard. i appreciate that hopefully everyone at home does too yep and we will give that we'll play it again and give answers at the end of the show but now i think it's time for the turntable talk everybody's talking at me i don't hear a word they're saying only the echoes of my mind. But this is what has happened so far. President Kennedy and Governor John Connolly of Texas have been cut down by assassins' bullets. They were shot as they turned toward downtown Dallas in an open car. The president, his limp body, and the arms of his wife was rushed to Parkland Hospital. The governor also was taken to the same hospital. In 1963, John F. Kennedy was assassinated by Lee Harvey Oswald in Dallas, Texas. Jerry Haynes, a.k.a. Mr. Peppermint, children's television persona, and Gibby Haynes' father, who you just heard here, was the first person to report live about that event. In 1966, the first iterance of the word psychedelic used to describe a band was printed onto the business cards of the 13th floor elevators. On January 10, 1978, the Sex Pistols played one of their final shows in Dallas, Texas battering the crowd with insults and spit. Paul Leary and Gibby Haynes were in the audience. In 1981, the Butthole Surfers played their first ever gig using the name Dick Clark Five at an art gallery in San Antonio. Gibby Haynes ran around the room with meat hanging out of his mouth, and Paul Leary had to unlearn how to play the guitar for this and future shows. Leary and Haynes met at Trinity College in San Antonio and became friends, with both having similar tastes in music, art, and offensive material. They created a zine around 1980 called Strange VD, and it featured fictitious disease names and descriptions along with gruesome pictures. These types of pictures end up being used again later on in their career, a lot. Because Gibby Haynes was working in an office at the time, he had access to copy machines and took advantage of that, printing out copies of their zine late at night. When his boss found a left-behind photo of a surgical disaster, Gibby was given an ultimatum. Work or zine. Gibby quit work, and he moved to Venice Beach, California. Paul Leary went too, and they formed a business selling clothes emblazoned with Lee Harvey Oswald's face on them. This, however, didn't turn out to be quite the boon they'd hoped for, and they moved back to Texas after a few months. They decided to form a band, but wanted to combine it with performance pieces and just general onstage chaos. Ridiculous and confrontational, Leary said that they were out to play the most horrendous music possible. Despite never using the same name twice, they built a small following and basically created a version of the residence designed for the hardcore punk set. Some of the names they used early on in their career were the Dick Gas Five, Ashtray Babyheads, Nine Foot Worm Makes Own Food, Vodka Family Winstons, Abe Lincoln's Bush, Ed Asner's Gay, The Right to Eat Fred Astaire's Asshole, which was shortened from the inalienable right to eat Fred Astaire's Asshole. 
Butthole Surfers was never actually a chosen band name that they used during the period. It was a song they played, and one night they were mistakenly introduced as the Butthole Surfers. That was the first show they ever got paid, so they went ahead and kept that name. Paul and Gibby added two brothers to play bass and drums. One reason was because they had access to a van. The van was needed to get them to San Francisco, where they may have had a scheduled show, depending on whose story is to be believed. According to the surfers, the van broke down just as as they got into San Fran, and they basically coasted it for a while until it completely died in front of the venue. They begged and begged to go on stage so they could pay a mechanic to fix their van. They were given about 20 minutes, and Jelly Biafra happened to be in the show. He loved them, and he asked them to open for the Dead Kennedys in L.A. After the L.A. show, he told them if they had any recordings, his label, Alternative Tentacles, would release it. The only real difference between this story and a more believable one is that they probably had already booked the San Francisco gig, and though their van was a mess and needed immediate repairs, it got them there. They went back to Texas and tried to gather what recordings they had so they could send them to Biafra. The problem with that is that they'd been recording on credit for a guy who was letting them use his studio during off times to record with the expectation that he'd eventually get paid. They had no money, though, and Alternative Tentacles wasn't willing to get their songs out of hock yet. They did have enough there for a solid EP that they wanted to send off, so they re-recorded it, some of it live, and sent it back to Alternative Tentacles. The songs were slightly different, but it worked. That version became known as Live PCPPEP. It's the green one with the clown on it. The clown was drawn by Paul Leary. Alternative Tentacles eventually paid for the original songs and also released that version. That's the one with the bodies on it from the neck down, each with that unsettling, distended belly or quasi-orcore, which is one of my favorite words. I've been waiting a long time to finally use it in a sentence. They also wanted to keep recording new material, but the brothers in the band were no longer in the band. This is another story that exists in multiple forms here. This is what we prefer. After getting paid for the L.A. show, Gibby held on to the money. This is something that happened for much of the existence of the band, and it wasn't something anybody really had a problem with. The money always all went back into the band itself and getting things for the band. And Gibby was really good with money. He was smart. He was an accountant. He knew what he was doing, and he knew how to get paid. In this case, though, the brothers wanted their cut, and they went to Gibby's parents' house, where he was staying, to collect it. According to them, when they went up there and demanded it, Gibby just immediately punched one of them in the face and they left, never to return to the surfers. I'm not sure whether they actually got their money or not. Now that they had a label, and a label they loved, they needed more songs for an album. They were now short a drummer and a bass player. Being short a bass player continues to be a problem for a while. Gibby and Paul recorded on their own, which they'd done a lot in the past anyway. They couldn't play shows, though, so there'd be no money coming in until they could fill out the band. They borrowed friends from other bands for some shows, but these weren't people who'd ever be able to join the band full-time. It wasn't until 83 that their drumming situation changed. First, they'd found a drummer named King Coffee. Coffee had been a drummer for a band called the Hugh Beaumont Experience and had been a big fan of the Butthole Surfers since seeing them play live a year earlier in 82. The Hugh Beaumont experience was breaking up, and he was a great drummer, but there was still one hurdle to cross. He played standing up without a kick drum, and this was not what Gibby and Paul wanted. Then they heard him play. He was maniacally loud, and he was hired almost immediately. Coffee became a third of what would be end up being the six iconic members of the band, 
though one of those six was never officially a member, but we'll, we'll get to her in just a bit. Also in 83, they found and recruited Teresa Nervosa. They'd been practicing at her place, and, and then one night she started playing drums while Gibby was practicing. She fit in perfect. She was also very loud and knew what she was doing. Additionally, she and Coffee had very similar features, and they would tell people for a few years that they were twins. She learned to play standing up, so now they had the perfect volume and style of drumming. You may know Teresa from the film Slacker. She was the person trying to sell Madonna's pap schmear and ended up being on the cover of the DVD version. She also came up with a wonderful quote about what the butthole surfers delivered to fans. We salvaged beauty from an immersion into the depraved. They could now play shows and could record with solid drummers instead of just using Gibby. For live shows, Gibby had already been known for singing through a toilet paper and paper towel tubes, but he moved on to a megaphone after a little money came in. Eventually, he got much more advanced with his vocal distortion machines, which he dubbed Gibbytronics. Between 81 and 83, Gibby and Paul and whoever else they could get were recording a lot of material. When Teresa joined the band, they loaded up a 1977 Chevy Nova owned by one of the many bass players who would come and go, and they began a three-year tour without once stopping back home. The car's back seats were ripped out and plywood was thrown down so that three people and a dog could fit in the back and sleep as needed. Barbed wire with doll parts and ripped up clothing covered the grill of the car, and Lady Killer 69 was spray painted along one side. A trailer with their gear was pulled behind them. One of their first stops was Detroit, Michigan, where they had a show booked through Corey Rusk, who had just taken over a small label called Touch and Go. Rusk wanted to sign the band, but they still wanted to stay with Alternative Tentacles. There was a problem with their old label, though. By this point, the band had more than enough material for a new album, but all of that label's money was going straight to the Dead Kennedys and anything the offer could do to upset Tipper Gore and the recently formed PMRC. Very little money was coming in, and they needed, a, they needed a release so they could get more people at their shows and make some money to keep the Lady Killer running. Touch and Go offered to release an album of their material for them, and this album became Psychic, Powerless, Another Man's Sack. The album was very well received, and more and more people started attending the shows as the band traveled. The material for that album had been sitting around for a while, so very little of it was ever played at shows. The band's sound was evolving and their shows were becoming top-notch, horrifying spectacles that were legitimately dangerous for epileptics or those on acid or just humans in general. This was 84, and it was right around then they needed to take a step back from the biography and start with what made the Butthole Surfers the most notorious live band of their generation. Maybe every generation before or since. It's time to tell you some of the more famous stories. Here's how a typical Butthole Surfer show would begin keeping in mind that no show of theirs was typical. Smoke would fill the venue. Strobe lights would start. Films would start playing. So many strobe lights and so many films going all at the same time. In fact, that Teresa had to leave the band in 1985 for about a year and a half to two years because she started suffering from extreme vertigo, convulsions, and vomiting from all the flickering of the films and the never-ending strobe lights. Multiple films would be playing over and over and on top of each other all over the place. Because of the smoke and the lights, those films would appear all over the venue. And so like 3D almost for split seconds at a time. These were films showing medical grotesqueries, car accidents, and episodes of Charlie's Angels. The most memorable of the films shown was of a penile reconstruction that took place after an incredibly gruesome farming accident. This film was sometimes also shown in reverse, which was even more unsettling somehow. 
The crowd wouldn't be able to see the band coming on stage with all the smoke, lights, and films. The music seemed to be coming from the bowels of the building long before people realized it was the first song and it was coming from the stage. Once the band was visible, the lead singer would be shouting through a bullhorn, his hair covered in clothespins, wearing a dress, maybe ten dresses. The rest of the band looked like freaks. Not like, hey, that guy's a freak. We're talking Todd Browning, Zippy the Pinhead kind of freaks. These were the freaks nightmares were made of. And yet, it was the lead singer who drew all the attention with his glazed-over Manson-like stare and, and a voice, whether it was coming through his bullhorn or through his vocal distortions, that sounded inhuman. Fans were never not kept completely disoriented. The band, for their part, was never not on acid, high, drunk, or some combination of the three. On a scale of 1 to 10, with 10 being Iggy Pop rolling around on stage and broken glass, this was 30, and it was only the beginning. Gibby, for his part, did a lot more than just use vocal effects. He would strip from dress to dress throughout the shows. He often had condoms filled with fake blood in them hidden in his underwear and would have these explode at various times throughout the night. He would pour lighter fluid or rubbing alcohol on his arm and light himself on fire, putting it out by sticking his arm down his underwear when he had underwear. He was naked, often. He was frightening, and he was violent, and he was big. It was unlikely that fans would get to hear songs they knew. The released material was almost always recorded years earlier. In fact, it wasn't until 1996's Electric Larry Land that the band first used all new material for an album. All of the medical films shown during the concerts were real. Teresa was able to score some because of where she'd been working before she joined the band, but Gibby put a lot of effort into getting the most effective ones. These types of things weren't as readily available as they might be today. Gibby would call and write to research facilities and medical schools requesting specific types of films so that he could present them to his students and colleagues. Some would send films back to Dr. Gibson Haynes. That's how the penis reconstruction film was acquired. The band was always looking to make more money to keep touring. And so to make extra money, the butthole surfers would open for themselves, but with a different name so they get paid as both the opener and the main band. At a show in 84, they opened as the Jack Officers, and David Yao from Scratch Acid and the Jesus Lizard was in the audience. He started screaming at Gibby about being owed money. Between every song, he would yell something, you owe me money. At one point, Gibby flipped him off. Yao got up close and spit in Gibby's face, but Gibby just wiped it off and kept playing. After the song ended, Yao ran up to Gibby, cracked a bottle across his head. As Gibby's body hit the floor, the blood flew all over the place. The band jumped in with a new song, and Yao just took over on vocals. The crowd, having no idea that this whole thing was staged, started fighting and brawling among themselves, and the whole venue got completely out of control. The band just thought this was hilarious. As mentioned earlier, Teresa left the band for about a year and a half because of the intensity of the shows, traveling all together, all five of them in a, in a car with a dog, and the drug use that was incredibly extensive. That all left her exhausted and, and ill. They added a second drummer, a woman that they called Cabbage. She wasn't the person that they meant to ask to be their drummer, though. Cabbage was in a band with another woman named Kathleen Lynch, and they wanted Kathleen to play drums, but somehow they got the two mixed up. So Cabbage became their new drummer. She was terrible. Terrible is something that they could probably work with, but she also wouldn't bathe and picked up a stray cat on the tour. They were all still living in a Chevy Nova with a big dog 
and now they had a member of the band who smelled awful, had no drumming skills, and had a cat stuffed into a car with them on top of everyone else. At a stop in Knoxville, while Cabbage was sleeping, the others formed a plan. They woke her up, drove her to a bus station, paid for a ticket for her to go back to Atlanta, and then they drove away. It was a bad decision asking Cabbage to join, but at the same time, they finally found their bass player in Jeff Pincus. He stayed with the band from there on out. Another legendary story involves a party in Atlanta where, surprise, there was a lot of drugs being done. There also happened to be a former first daughter at this party. Amy Carter had been staying at the house for a few days. It was owned by a friend and wasn't usually used for butthole surfer level parties. As soon as she realized that she was at a party with this band, she knew she absolutely had to leave. Even post-presidency, being caught at a party with all these drugs and this sort of band would not be a good thing. So she hid in an upstairs bedroom and made a phone call. She packed her suitcase and brought it downstairs and placed it by the door. At this point, the band and pretty much everyone at the party knew what was going on. So Gibby wanted to seize this uh, unique opportunity. He walked over to the suitcase, pulled his pants down, and rubbed his penis across the handle of the case many, many, many times. A few minutes later, the lights surrounded the house and a car pulled up front. (laughs) Jimmy Carter got out. He carefully gripped the suitcase, which was now penis-enhanced, and he loaded it into the trunk. Amy got in and drove off bravely into the night. We mentioned that when the band asked Cabbage to play drums, they'd meant to ask another woman. That woman is Kathleen Lynch, and she enters the picture again now. Kathleen was originally from Atlanta, but had moved to New York City for a while where she played in bands, was a performance artist, and worked at peep shows. During one of her peep shows, she'd just finished eating some Chinese food that had turned. As she was dancing, she had explosive diarrhea shoot out of her. It splashed against the windows and the walls, and patrons began running and throwing up. Kathleen, upon finishing the evacuation of her bells, looked around at the sick she'd flung around her, raised her hands to the sky, and proclaimed, Ta-da! Kathleen immediately became known as Ta-da, the shit lady, and an integral part of the Butthole Server shows. Kathleen joined the band on stage and became part of the touring group, though never an official member of the band. She had perfect control of her own urine, which will become important soon. And the band once saw her pee a tiny amount onto a spoon without any of it spilling over. She took that spoon and poured it into a pan of dried up old mac and cheese. As that was happening, someone else came over with a fork and took a big biteful. Someone in the band asked, didn't you just see her put pee into that? And the reply was simply, yeah, that's why I took a bite from the side. Sometimes, she'd wrap each of her teeth with tinfoil before going on stage, which just gives me the shivers. Here's a bit about Kathleen from Jeff Pincus. We all went down to Key Largo. It was one of our first vacations that we actually took as a band. We decided to go snorkeling, but Tada stayed on the boat with the captain. We came back, and the captain of the ship was just looking at us like we were all crazy, and we couldn't figure out what was going on. He wouldn't talk to us. Later, we found out that When we were in the water, Tada had thrown up and had diarrhea at the same time. She had the diarrhea in her hand, and she threw up into the water. She said she was feeding the fish. And here's what Paul Leary says about that same event. What's my resume going to say? 
For the past 12 years, I've been touring with someone who shits in their hand and feeds it to fish in front of a bunch of people. The most well-known story about the butthole surfers is about a show at Danceteria, a club in New York City. The band was in California, and they're just about to head to the UK on tour. They were trying to find shows to play because, as usual, they had no money. Danceteria called up and asked them to play two nights for $3,000 per night. They immediately jumped in Lady Killer, drove back east. When they got to the show, the manager told them that their second night had been canceled, so they'd only be getting $3,000. They needed the money, and Gibby was known for making sure that they always got paid what they were owed. There are stories about this that are fantastic, but we just don't have time to go into all of them. Just know that he takes care of the money and does a great job, even if he doesn't always remember it. Anyways, here's what happened on February 2nd, 1986, the date of the night at Danceteria. The band arrived and started taking acid. They had friends showing up and they hadn't played New York for a while. By this point, they'd officially left Alternative Tentacles and joined Touch and Go. And they released Rembrandt Pussy Horse, an album Alternative Tentacles wanted nothing to do with. The album had fans and the band hadn't played in New York in over six months. The crowd was absolutely frantic, ready for the show. At least, they thought they were. This is when they were told that that second night had been canceled and that they weren't going to get paid for it. Gibby went to the bar there, stole a bottle of whiskey, and he chased that whiskey with speed and more acid. On this night, the band still had Cabbage, Jeff Pincus, King Coffee, Paul Leary, and Gibby, and they were all mad as hell. This also happened to be the debut performance of Tada, the Shit Lady. When the opening band finished, a concert of legendary proportions began. First, the strobe lights, the smoke, the gruesome films. And then the band starts playing. Kathleen jumps on stage, disrobes, and starts dancing. She'd shaved her head, but that wasn't a view yet as she was completely covered with a sack on top of her head. Gibby comes out, covered in torn dresses, eyes glazed and unfocused. He takes a final swig of the stolen whiskey, empties it, and the band starts playing louder and more offensively. Gibby pours lighter fluid on his arm and watches it for a second longer than usual. Once that fires out, he takes a cymbal, places it upside down on the stand in front of the stage. He fills that with lighter fluid, lights it. Once ablaze, Gibby starts banging on the cymbal with a drumstick, sending small fireballs throughout the crowd. Gibby starts stripping down his dresses during and between songs, as he usually does. This time, though, he hadn't worn anything underneath. By the third song, he was completely naked. Kathleen, now unhooded and also naked, began waving a plastic bat around, and liquid, liquid was flying out across the crowd, coming from the end of the bat. Remember how he told you that she had pitch-perfect urine skills? Well, you can imagine what the plastic bat was filled with, and she was just spraying down the crowd. The songs were unrecognizable. The whole band was naked. Gibby and Kathleen started wrestling around on the stage, then rolling around on the stage, then humping on the stage. And no one knows ex- exactly what happened up there, but it appears that a thumb entered an anus at least one time. A song or two later, Kathleen and Cabbage were rolling around on the stage, and the audience was just stupefied. The sound man had had enough, and he cut the power, but the band kept playing. The audience was aggressively encouraged to leave. Paul somehow found a screwdriver and started plunging it into every speaker he could find. Gibby, naked, angry, messed up completely, was thrown out on the back door by security. He gets back in. He tries to collect the money, screaming and ranting and banging his near-seven-foot-large frame into everything. 
he gets tossed again out into the freezing night. He's still naked. This happens several more times before a check is cut. The first check is for $3,000. Gibby rips it up. Another one's written. He signs it and then rips that one up too. After several more checks are written, he finally accepts one, still for only $3,000. But considering the damage done to the club, they probably came out ahead. On their final exit from the club, the owner yells back at them, you'll never play this town again. On February 12th, just 10 days later, they played CBGBs, and Danceteria was shut down for good soon after. Legendary show number two took place in New Jersey at a club called City Gardens on May 3rd, 1987. The club had recently added food to their menu, which included with it an all-ages license for shows. The bottle surfers had played there previously, so the owner made sure to go up to Gibby before the show started and ask him to please tone down the nudity a bit. Gibby agreed, happily. The first band to play that night was Ween. This was their first ever gig. When the butthole surfers started playing, there were families enjoying the scene, happily munching down hot dogs and frozen pizza. Kathleen gets up on stage, starts dancing, and as the first song begins, she strips down completely naked. Gibby starts in with his pyrotechnics, filling cymbals with rubbing alcohol and shooting flames into the crowd. City Gardens may very well have been one of the most flammable clubs in the country, certainly in New Jersey. Here's a quote from a bartender working that night, formerly the Daily Show host, John Stewart. Gibby had brought on a topless lady. I think Tut or Randy, those are the ones the owner wants, the manager, had said, don't do that. And so they shut them down, and Gibby just started, like, lighting shit on fire. If you remember that place, it was basically like a box filled with wall insulation. Like, that's what its insides were. Wall insulation painted black, probably painted black with napalm. It was the most flammable place you could possibly light. It ended up catching a, the wall a little bit. Somebody got a fire extinguisher and ran on stage. Once everything was shut down, they tried to get Gibby to stop playing. As a bouncer approached him, he doused him with rubbing alcohol and began walking at him with a lighter. Here's how that went down, according to Mickey Ween. A security guard came on stage and Gibby threw the alcohol on him. The dude just started backing away. It was clear that Gibby probably would set him on fire. And now, knowing Gibby like I do, it was definitely within the realm of possibility. The alcohol-laden bouncer, Mark Pasetsky, said this. Gibby just gave me that psycho look with the Charles Manson eyes. He grabs a bottle of the rubbing alcohol and throws it on me and then starts walking towards me with a lighter. And John, the other bouncer, just jumps off stage. It was every man for himself at that point. Gibby's zoned-out eyes focused eventually, and he settled down and got the band's money. Nobody died that night specifically because of the butthole servers. So, so far we've only briefly talked about the albums they made, but they're really fantastic. Starting with Psychic Powerless and running through Hairway to Steven, they made about as good a four-record run as anyone's ever made. Most people consider Locust Abortion Technician as their apex. This album was put together mostly by Paul Leary, who never stopped working to make the band the absolute best at being the worst. He was talented, smart, and drove himself as hard as anyone in music. He experimented with sound and time and had one of their songs include 64 simultaneous kick drum tracks. For 22 going on 23, he stayed up after the rest of the band had gone to bed and started listening to a call-in radio show. Once he had heard the woman speaking, he started recording. The person calling in was talking about a sexual assault and Leary started playing music along with it. 
When the band woke up, he played on the track, and they absolutely loved it. The caller was probably a crank, but that's another story that has different tellings. There's also a conspiracy about locust abortion technician that the album uses a frequency in it that causes people to get violent. People really believe this. They believe it with hate-filled anger, I suppose. None of the four near-perfect albums contained songs that were specifically made for those albums. They had songs recorded, and they molded them into the right pieces. It was a display of skill on the part of Paul and Gibby to create cohesion when it wasn't originally there. The songs often had different people playing on them, so much so they don't even know who played on what recording most of the time. In the liner notes, there aren't any mentions of who played on the album, and sometimes there aren't even track names listed. The surfers also had total control of the artwork. No one at this point was able to or willing to tell them what to do or how to do it. Touch and Go wanted them left to their own devices, and that worked. The stories that this band generated could fill several shows. We've barely touched on their abject charm. Here are some things that we wanted to include, but just don't have time for. The band moved to Athens at one point and began stalking R.E.M., inviting them to barbecues over and over again. Gibby was one of the last people to see Kurt Cobain alive. They were roommates in rehab days before he died. Gibby's band P, the one with Johnny Depp, was playing the Viper Room when a friend of his, River Phoenix, died in front of the club. Gibby and Al Jorgensen lived with Timothy Leary for a brief period, allowing him to subject them to LSD testing. Before adding Jeff Pincus, they went through four or five bass players, including Kramer from Shockabilly. And there's even a fun story about a young bass player who arrived at to the surfers with a stolen tuba. And what happened to that is worth looking up. When they finally signed to a large label, first Rough Trade and then Capital, their fans unfairly turned their backs on them for being sellouts. Those fans weren't diving in dumpsters for food for over a year while driving from bar to bar in a car stuffed with four other people and a dog. They were absolutely broke, more broke than anybody I've ever heard of in a band. They were literally going through garbage cans for food, collecting cans to turn in for for money. They sued Touch and Go and almost put the label out of business. This did not go over well with indie bands, but when the whole case is actually looked at objectively, they had a point. And they tried to work with Touch and Go first. I think um, in looking at, at the butthole surfers and what they did, it is just a bizarre story of drive and indie rock. Because it is almost like they were a victim of their own legendary status, you know. And so, you know, when they got to that point where they did go on the major labels and started getting MTV airplay and just kind of calmed down as a band and made money and probably, you know, enjoyed that a little bit, it's like everybody kind of just forgot about them or looked down on them. But it's it's hard to blame a band for wanting to do that. And if you look at it, like, you take the, the craziest stuff that they did and your band is named the Butthole Surfers. And to get to the point where you can be on MTV and make money and do stuff like that, it's just kind of an insane trajectory. Yeah, absolutely. And I don't fault them in any way for wanting to make money. They did a lot of really great stuff. And that residence comparison, I think, is apt. Their song, Moving to Florida, or Going to Florida, from their Socket of Davis EP, Cream Corn from the Socket of Davis EP, another story that we don't have time to tell. If that had just been placed exactly as is on a residence album, everybody would just assume it was them. Everything sounds just like that. They, they knew what they were doing. They're very, very smart, regardless of how they behaved and what they said to, be, 
to people about their sound. They knew they knew everything they were doing, and, and good for them to sell out. It doesn't doesn't bother me at all. I actually for this show, I sat through all of their albums. Personally, I never liked anything after Hairway to Steven, though Double Live came out after that. But that's that sort of went the last of their golden era. I didn't like anything after that, and I still don't. But I sat through everything for this for this show for you, our our trusted fans. I put up with listening to Pepper over and over. And I don't fault them at all. The music, I don't think it was very good after that, but they liked it for a while until until they got to Capitol, really. And good for them. You know, I don't I certainly don't mind them making a lot of money after being dirt poor for a couple of years. And one of the things you told me which really kind of throws me is as you were kind of researching and looking at looking at what people said is a lot of people much prefer the later stuff and think that the early stuff is just garbage. Is that, you know, weren't you saying something like that, that a bunch of people just kind of throw out the early stuff? Yeah, so I, for researching this, I had extra time because we had that nice little winter break. So I just went all in and I listened to other podcasts where people had talked about the Buttle Surfers. And those, it seems like every one of them, they all kind of started listening to the Butthole Surfers with Electric Larry Land or whatever that other one is that, oh, Independent Wormsalon, one of those two. And that's kind of where they thought the peak was. You know, some people would recognize that Locust Abortion Technician is supposed to be the, their best album, but they couldn't get into it. So it's just strange for me to think of them being appreciated for things that I find not very good at all, especially when compared with what they were able to do in the 80s with their sound and visuals and uh, shows. Like, that's it's just like a different band. One was really good, and one was the one that made Pepper. <laughs> well, the thing is, I know we, uh, in this turntable talk, we spend a lot of time talking about the stories and the craziness and this, you know, this hobo troop of bands that would go and light fires and perform live. But, like, they really did a lot of... Cr- pretty crazy innovative things with sound like the vocal distortions and the tape manipulation and the sound collages and all that stuff was was pretty it took psychedelic to a whole nother another level and and really for for the indie for the indie time in the 80s they were really kind of pushing envelopes they were and they had nobody else really to to fit in with as bands like they they weren't punk like those first couple eps sounded kind of sort of hardcore punk but they didn't fit in with them at all. I don't think they really saw them as as peers specifically along the way just because their their sound wasn't the same. They weren't thinking the same things as far as like meeting up with Big Black or even Sonic Youth. They weren't really on the same wave, wavelength with them. It's just different. Well, and one other crazy thing is you, you mentioned the REM stalking, but it's really kind of this, it, it, it's really appropriate because here you have REM, who is this band that, you know, puts out one EP and one album and all of a sudden they're indie darlings and making money and everybody knows them and they're all over college rock. And at the same time you have the butthole surfers who who are a mess, but you know, it's the exact same time, kind of the exact same, a lot of hard work and touring and, you know, eventually get that recognition, but it takes a long time. So it's, it's kind of funny that they were obsessed with REM in their own way. I mean, it's just, yeah. And I think from around that point when, I was listening to them. I think I, I think my oldest brother, um, actually both of my brothers were were really into the Butthole Surfers. My brother Dan really he was the first one I knew listening to them. He got those EPs when they first came out. He was a huge Dead Kennedys fan, so I think he probably just was keeping up with alternate 
alternative tentacles and he really liked those albums and then my other brother so my oldest brother was listening to them and i remember after hairway to steven came out and we then finally double live was released and we were we were listening to that and they do a cover of the one i love on that album and from what we knew at the time they were performing the song fairly regularly and taking dollar bills and throwing them into the crowd after lighting them on fire like oh man basically saying rem's a sellout and then to know that then they signed with Capital. I mean, I'm not going to fault them for signing with Capital, but I don't see that addressed anywhere by them. They don't ever address the fact that maybe they were hypocrites at least at least once. <laughs> and maybe they weren't. Maybe we got the story wrong. But fun times listening to those albums for the first time. Oh, yeah. You mentioned that, that uh, note that plays through Locust Abortion Technician that makes people mad. I remember one time I was playing that in the car and I picked somebody up who, who's not really a music lover. And I wasn't even thinking about it. I just kind of pick him up and we drive for, for a mile or whatever. And he just kind of looks at me and says, what the fuck are you listening to? <laughs> it's like, it's, like <laughs> it's just such a, <laughs> such a mind-blowing experience. Like, who would ever listen to this? And now for the show, I just want to uh, very quickly, and we'll we'll put this information on in the in the podcast information about the show, whatever they end up calling that. I I never remember what that's called. Show, show notes. notes, I guess. Yeah, in our show notes, we're going to put information about the information I used for the research, and one of them was uh, a book that we've both read. A lot of people probably have. It's called "Our Band Could Be Your Life" by Michael Azarad. Uh, he has a full chapter on. The Buttle Surfers, and he goes into that Danceteria story quite a bit. I also read a book called Let's Go to Hell by James Burns, which is all about the Buttle Surfers. And then there's another book by Ben Graham called Scatological Alchemy that's just also all about the Buttle Surfers. And they have another book coming out this year. I don't know who it's by. I haven't looked into that enough yet, though I did pre-order it. Uh, it's more of a coffee table kind of book, which what else would you rather have on your coffee table and guests come over but bubble surfers information <laughs> ta-da. so ta-da but they have another book coming out anyway those those books are great if i would recommend if you are a fan go ahead and read read them all the michael azrad is going to be very easy to find the scatological alchemy that's the one i i will probably read again i like the way ben graham writes he's a writer for quietus he's interviewed paul leary before he's just a really talented writer and um, he does a great job the james burns one is very very good too but i think he's He's a really big fan, so it's. I don't think he ever kind of goes against anything that they say or do, and he likes everything that they've done, which I'd rather have somebody kind of go back and forth and talk about some of the things that maybe they didn't do correctly. That's a, that's an issue with biographies, music it biographies. If, if somebody's so such a big fan that they want to write a, a book about somebody, sometimes they have such a clouded perspective. John Fahey, the John Fahey one I read like that, the Tiny Tim one was not so bad, but but sometimes you read those books and it's just you, you can tell it's it's tinted. Absolutely, and he seems like a really nice guy. I've had some interactions with him online. He seems wonderful, um, so I do suggest reading it. It is, it's like four hundred pages. He goes through at the end and um, goes out through each and every recording session. He could get information about who played on it, what the session was about. He goes through every release, every live show. He's, it's extensive. It's definitely worth owning. But as far as reading it, just know that he likes them more than anyone else. <laughs> I guess we should always, we always try to mention this. But as far as if you're looking to, we we were looking at the uh, record prices, and they're, they're very reasonable. I mean, you can 
you can get you can get these records. But is there like one record you recommend starting with or a couple songs people may not know? We didn't do any clips of the show, so what would you recommend just uh, listening? My favorite one is Rembrandt Pussy Horse. I know a lot of people like seems like predominantly people think or say that Locust Abortion Technician is their like their apex. Rembrandt Pussy Horse is my favorite, and I think other than that, my second one for for people who don't know how good they were. Harry to Stevens, a really accessible record for being really hard to listen to um, in a great way. Very good. All right. Well, let's uh, play some songs. I'm going to start us off with a song today that I picked mostly because the Texas connection. It is Sir Doug and the Texas Tornadoes, and the name of the song is Give Me Back the Key to My Heart. Take my off your wall It don't matter to me at all Sit eyes heading far apart But you wanted me to crawl Give back my TV it don't mean that much to me Why you're giving back my things Give me back the key to my heart Give back the key to my heart Give back the key to my heart Straight into your heart, dear Well, you say I was the one To blame all the wrong that's been done Well, you got a friend named Cocaine And to me he is to blame He has drained life from your face He has taken my place When you're alone in San Antonio Give me back the key to my heart Give back the key to my heart Give back the key to Alright, that was Give Me Back the Key to My Heart by Sir Doug and the Texas Tornadoes and that's off a 76 album uh, called Texas Rock for Country Rollers on ABC Dot Records. 
great song off a good, not great record that skirts between country rock and countries as Doug Psalm um, was apt to do. Not the countryfied garage from the Sir Douglas Quintet days, nor the pure Tex-Mex from his later albums. The Texas Tornadoes, or his backing band on this album, are not the Tejano music icons that you usually think of when you think of the Texas Tornadoes, which I think Sir Doug would collaborate with them later in his career. But anyways, it's a, it's a pretty song, nice song, and it was eventually covered by Uncle Tupelo on, I think, Anodyne. Yeah, that's all I got to say about that. All right. My first song is from 1968. It's by a band called The Golden Dawn, and the song is called Starvation. Is called Starvation and it's from their album Power Plant. The Golden Dawn was an Austin psych band started around 1966 and a lot of people see them as being kind of a copycat of the 13th floor elevators but really they were peers working at exactly the same time and they were very close friends so a lot of the sounds that they had that sound like the 13th floor elevators were all kind of because they were 
so close and going back and forth with each other. Good band. They're not as good as the 13th Floor Elevators, but it's a very good band. People should know more about them. They were on the same label. called It was called International Artists, and the version I have is on a label called Get Back. I think it was an, like an Italian release from 99 or something. I don't have any idea even how I found it, but it's it's a good album. All right, my next song is by Rocky Erickson, also from Austin, and the song is called I Have Always Been Here Before. It seems like the bell rings time to deja vu. Everything is familiar being here with you. All you've ever had before you've had to understand. Now all you have to do is want to have at your command. I have always been here before. Allowing my mind's call of Incorporate more never stops this flow Rocky Erickson with the song I Have Always Been Here Before from 1986, I think this version was, from his album Gremlins Have Pictures, and the version I have is on a record label called Pink Dust, and this is, I just love listening to Rocky Erickson, so, and researching the Buttle Surfers, there were, there were a lot of Rocky Erickson stories, they obviously because they're from the same area, he was an idol of theirs, they met a few times, they played together I think Paul Leary may have produced some of his stuff or King Coffee after the 
after the bottle store first kind of wound down. Uh, they had a lot of a big connection. So I was going back and forth and listening to a lot of 13th Floor Elevators and Rocky Erickson, and I really wanted to play that. I Have Always Been Here Before is one of my favorite songs of his, and that's why I played it. It's a great track. All right, and my last track is a song called The Main by Grant Hart.
Okay, I um, kind of took a left turn from Texas and wound up in uh, Minnesota, I guess. But uh, pick the song because I think Husker Du were contemporaries of the Butthole Surfers, and apparently they hung out quite a bit. And it's just kind of another another great uh, 80s indie band that was kind of nonstop touring type band. I've always preferred the Grant Hart tracks to the Bob Mould tracks in Husker Du. And his first solo record, which came out in 89 on SST called Intolerance, is just a phenomenal record. You know, there's the very public, nasty dissolution of Husker Du. He had been falsely diagnosed with HIV at the time. And so he put out this record, which, you know, has flares of psychedelic and just that great Grant Hart songwriting. And so this this song, The Main, is, is kind of a piano-driven, heartbreaking song about drug addiction. And he just, he played all the instrument. You could tell he just poured everything into this song. I watched a documentary called Every Everything about him a few months ago. He seems just like a genuine, sweet guy. He was, he's just way more introspective than most, like, musicians and documentaries about themselves the good stuff, the bad stuff, just had more perspective than I see in a lot of people when talking about themselves, not just musicians, anybody. And so his loss, you know, the loss of him is, is a great loss. Um, if if you have never heard his first album, Intolerance, you need to go listen to it. If you like Husker Du, but you haven't listened to the album, you need to listen to it. It's, it's great. Definitely. We could do an entire show on Grant Hart. I think he's wonderful. There's almost no chance that we could ever close out those four songs that we do with a better song there aren't oh. song there aren't many songs that are better than that oh yeah i um, love it. and and that's there's two or three songs on that album that i was debating about playing too but uh, i think that one's just a it's a real powerful song i don't know how else to say it so just amazing did you ever get to see him live nope no nope. you saw him a couple times right Yep, saw him once in Lincoln, Nebraska with my oldest brother and once in Chicago with my uh, now wife and our friend Matthew and his wife. So, yeah, I saw him um, in both places. In the, the show in Lincoln, he was playing a pretty small pretty small bar. And when we, we got there, he was playing pool with some exchange students from China um, <laughs> at the, for the University of Nebraska, go Huskers. And they didn't. They didn't speak English, and he was just having such a good time playing pool with them. It looked great. I ended up talking to him a little bit. Super, super nice guy. He played every song I asked for. What could, uh, what more could I want? Yeah, that's great. And one thing, this doesn't really have to do with anything, but his ability to drum as fast and as hard as he did in Husker Du and still sing, it just always astounds me. I mean, he's not like Levi and Helm or, or Phil Collins. like Right. I think, yeah, Phil Collins would be his... His peer. That's who he was probably trying to aspire to be. Yes, yes. Um, Poor guy. Nobody could reach that height. Well, he is the genesis and the, the revelation. Okay. Uh, anyways, go go listen to some Grant Hart. Do, you, do your soul some good. All right. We have one unfinished piece of business, and that is the quiz. Just as a reminder, I am going to play one clip it has six songs, and they are stacked, staggered and stacked on top of each other. And your job is to tell me who is the singer of each song in order. And if you can, tell me the name of the song. They're all by one band. All right, here it is. They're busy waiting for her booster. 
just back from Carolina. She says she's bound to beat a sailor. If you'd only thought of this before. Suddenly, Rock hands gripped his package and he felt himself worn up. He landed with a thud in the truck and was off. Marsha Bronson had just finished setting her hair. It had been a very rough weekend. She had to remember not to drink like that. Bill had been nice about it, After the whistle blew, he said he still respected her, and after all, it was certainly the way of nature. how you did okay i'm not even going to go after the songs i know i know some of them but i'm going to just kind of really focus as much as i can at this time of night after after putting kids to bed i'm going to start with lou reed was the first voice yep john kale was second on top of that one yes mo tucker joined in after that yes doug yule jumped in after that with a song from squeeze i think which which what song do you think it was it was, uh, I think it was from Squeeze, and it was something with Jim in the title, maybe? Little Jack. Good job. Little Jack. Very good, Jack. very good. Okay. The next one, I, I thought I, I thought Nico was in there next, and then Sterling Morrison after. Well, you nailed it. It was Lou, John, Moe, Doug, Nico, and Sterling. And the songs, if you were playing them along at home, were Sister Ray, The Gift, after hours, Little Jack, and that was from Squeeze. That was that was my uh, my curveball there. Their best album, <laughs> our favorite Velvet Underground album. Do you have that on vinyl? Yeah. Oh man, we should play some songs from that sometime. We should do a whole turntable <laughs> talk on that. We should uh, the making of that album. Yeah. If there, if anybody knows about it and hasn't been, it's not yeah. bad. But that's not, the Little Jack song sounds a lot like a Grateful Dead song, like a bad. It's a terrible Grateful Velvet. Under, it's a terrible Velvet Underground album, but it's not a bad album. Right, exactly. Probably shouldn't have used that name. Anyways, the fifth song was All Tomorrow's Parties, and the last song was Sterling Morrison's part on Murder Mystery. He didn't sing very much, but he oh, he did sing. Okay, that was. I just took a guess at the last one. I couldn't hear. I mean, I couldn't tell. I just sort of was trying to figure out who else. Could have sung with the band once I had those first ones. So yeah, there's there's no more options. Anyways, that fantastic work. I don't know how well it turned out. Hopefully, maybe somebody out there can tell me if they like that quiz or if that that, that was total garbage. But you got it. I'm so right. Must not be that bad. Yep. Well, you did really well on mine too. Hopefully, everybody else did. Absolutely. And uh, our uh, public service announcement is, is go out and get yourself a record. Go support some musician. Go support a record store, an independent label, but spend some money, do something to help out somebody who's making music or getting your music. Maybe you should go see a live show. See what you can find. Maybe there's some crazy band out there now that's touring in your hometown. Find out how flammable you are. <laughs> you should go to a show where you have the potential of getting yourself lit on fire. I challenge you. 
And if you get a chance, check us out on Facebook, Twitter, email us at podcast at gmail.com. Let us know what's going on. If there's any topic you want to see covered or any topic that you want to join us and, and cover yourselves, if you want, we'd, we'd love to have more people jumping in. Always. And go listen to more Butthole Surfers and Grant Hart. I would recommend putting that Grant Hart album and uh, one of the Butthole Surfer albums on at the same time and just letting it ride, see how that sounds. And I would not. <laughs> <laughs> you should probably listen to Joe on this one. <laughs> All right, everybody. Thanks for listening, and uh, we will see you next time. What the hell was that? It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points.